0: Just just thinking about unconscious biases, when unconscious biases happen, or we resort to unconscious biases, most when we are under pressure either, or we are making really quick decisions. Mm -hmm. And so for something where you're swiping right or left, it's your momentary, instantaneous decision that you have to make.
1: Thanks for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. If you'd like to know more about our events or become a member, do check us out on our website, www.thetroubleclub.com. You can also find this linked in the description below this podcast. To introduce Pragya to you all, if you don't know her or her work, um, she is a
2: behavioral and data scientist by trade, um, works as a senior academic in US and UK universities, and I now believe the majority of your work is as a journalist and author. Um, and you are a campaigner for women's rights and the founder of a research think tank, 50% project. And you run your own podcast, Outside the Boxes. And you've done TEDx talks, which makes me really happy because in my other line of work, when I'm wearing a different hat, I'm part of the TEDx London curation team. So yeah, it's really nice to also be joined uh, with some of the TED and TEDx community. Um, so when we were having a discussion last week um, and thinking about how are we going to open this discussion? How am I going to get the audience hooked and really engaged? Um, I was very keen to talk about this very important question and topic. Um, so I'm hoping you can help me with this, Pregya. Um, so to get us started, everyone, many of us, including me, um, have delved into the world of online dating. And when we swipe right or we swipe left, like, I think, you know, it's, it's my choice. Very subjective. I know what I like sometimes. And however, having read your book, I now know that perhaps there's a lot of implicit or unconscious biases happening. Um, so my question to start, yeah, is when someone sees a dating profile like mine, so some names some pictures, some very witty and charming descriptions of themselves, what kind of implicit biases might be at play
0: first of all thanks for having me tara it's really wonderful to be here and to be speaking to you face to face um yes. yes um and yeah it's lovely to meet you since you're the organi- uh, part of the TEDx London team um also <laughs> the TEDx women event uh, two years ago up here in the north amazing um, yeah in terms of dating, online dating is not something I have personal experience of, so I'm really mystified and quite <laughs> fascinated by it all the time. Um, but yes, a lot of research has been done in this area. And it just, just thinking about unconscious biases, when unconscious biases happen or we resort to unconscious biases, most when we are under pressure either or we are making really quick decisions. Mm -hmm. And so for something where you're swiping right or left, it's your momentary instantaneous decision that you have to make. You're not thinking rationally or logically. It doesn't go to the rational part of your brain. And you have to just make a, you make a very quick decision based on your instant kind of like or dislike of a person or just, so that's really rife for our biases or prejudices or stereotypes to come to play. Um, So obviously things like um, it's basically your photo that's, that's being judged on, looks. And a lot of the factors that come into play are social desirability as well. So the social norms, what is desirable according to social norms? And we might think Mm. we are all mavericks and we all have our very unique preferences (laughs) and tastes, but I think we are all governed by social norms. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of our our biases are determined by what is socially acceptable or desirable, Mm. what is the framework of beauty that we are working within and so that's something that obviously determines it um and we know from um, um anthropological and evolutionary studies that mate selection or the notion of attractiveness also mm. determines ideas of things like who is more powerful or who has more status hierarchy. So the attractivity bias or the kind of low bias based on our looks also determines these other kind of factors or attributes that we associate to people or assign to people. And that's called yeah. a halo effect. So when we think that yeah. somebody is more attractive, we also think they're probably more efficient or better to talk to or yeah. just generally a better person, you know? And so that's the kind yeah. of, thing that comes into play in online dating as well. Um, And there was another really interesting research done, and I I think I wrote about it in Swain, now that it's a blur, I wrote it last year, so sometimes (laughs) I remind myself, um, about the height bias as well. So a lot of our our biases are rooted in kind of who, the height um, of a person as well, and often there is a- height. Yeah, height, of (laughs) course. A person who's smaller is considered more dynamic or more a leader, I mm. uh, have more leadership attributes and that's obviously a very kind of a uh, different based on society and culture but there is a really interesting research done about how people take selfies or photographs for these online dating profiles and the yeah. angle that they hold the camera and that can show that that person maybe is taller or shorter than you and that those kind of judgments people make as well sometimes from the profile.
2: Oh my gosh so we've already touched on like so many different implicit biases immediately I did not realize that where I took my selfies something was going on in my brain um so I thought personally the reason I asked everyone is that I just thought dating was a really good way of just showing how implicit biases live in our day-to-day lives and decisions but if we now jump into like sort of more of the the science and psychology behind i think it'll be really helpful for one to know like what exactly how would you define an implicit bias just in in general to someone who's never heard of it before
0: yeah i think implicit means that's something that we are not aware of consciously so um there are explicit biases and implicit biases. So, Explicit biases is might be that we always, when we're deciding to go on holiday, we always prefer a seaside resort or we always prefer to go to yeah. a historic city. And often we're aware of these things. So they are very explicit and often we're okay to accept them. But implicit biases are often things like with people don't want to sometimes accept that they might be carrying these biases or they might not even be aware of but (laughs) they determine our actions and our interactions with other people and the judgments we make of other people as well so those are and they are often done these are the biases that we are these are the templates we carry in our brain according to which we measure other people or make decisions or we match information that's coming in because we have so much information coming into our brain Mm at all times all the information cannot be processed in a rational and a logical manner. So often we process a lot of information really quickly and we match it to these pre-existing templates and they can be based on our upbringing, our childhood, things we have seen in media, things that are, as I said, social norms or cultural norms. So these are the things that determine these biases that we carry.
2: So they help us navigate the world that we're in
0: absolutely yes gotcha it, it, yeah meant to help us navigate the world that we are in yes.
2: yeah and you talk a lot in the first section of your book uh, you know that also like we've sort of evolved to have these templates as you say what can you speak a bit more about how we we've all kind of every all human sort of evolved to have these implicit biases
0: absolutely because um evolutionary Evolutionarily, we were determined. We were designed to um, survive. So survival is our Mm. instinct. And um, the first notion of survival was to determine which other person belongs to a tribe or not to a tribe, whether they are in group or out group, whether they are threat or whether we should be fearful of of them, whether we should be Mm -hmm. threatened by them. And so those are the judgments that people were making from a from a long time that who belongs to a tribe and so we talk about tribe and tribal mentality now and so we are designed to carry these biases we were designed to carry these biases Mm -hmm. but what is now happening is that we we sometimes people make these justification of the implicit biases we carry based on the the evolutionary that we are we are designed or we are programmed to do it so we can't really help it but we don't navigate in similar environments now we are Mm. has changed completely and our biases have changed and our stereotypes have changed completely and the impact that they has is enormous it's not the same as maybe thousands of years ago when we were yeah, in caves and <laughs> just determining who's going to be stealing our food or who's who's a threat to our survival so i i so we are we have these cognitive biases and some of these biases are quite helpful they are, they can be positive as well mm-hmm. you know so things that parents have towards their children thinking that our children are the most beautiful most intelligent people yeah. around. Um, help us love them and nurture them, you know, because it can be tough to have children when you know, <laughs> have nightmare. that's the only thought that keeps you going. But uh, no jokes aside, I think that yeah, so we have these positive biases as well. But sometimes these biases really um create prejudice and discrimination. We can talk more about that. So.
2: Yeah, no, I was wondering, I'm not sure if that will link exactly to because I was really interested by the second section of Prager's book talks a lot about now we have so much, a much, much better understanding of how brain works. So you talk a lot about the neuroscience and neuroimaging. And has that also taught us about implicit biases and and
0: how they work? I think the mapping uh, implicit biases is quite tricky um first of all i mean a lot of experiments i covered a range of experiments from different domains in my book and different disciplines and the aim was to actually talk about not just show what the results were but also that how people find it tricky to map these and how they Mm. have done it and how do we capture these biases but neuroimaging is is relatively new i mean there's not been that much work done in this field but it's obviously being applied more and more and it's really useful because it tells us shows us in some way about where our information is being processed in our brain so it shows us that amygdala is the one that responds to fear and threat and it shows that when we're making these biased decisions that's the one that actually kind of lights mm-hmm. up or is 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 shown to be most active and so Neuroimaging is really showing us which parts of the brain are being really active when we're making these really quick decisions, like if we are walking in the dark and we cross the road when we some, see somebody coming over, which parts of our brain are being activated then, because that's when our unconscious biases are being triggered because we have a feeling of fear or threat against this, that this person could be a threat. And that can be triggered by gender, that can be triggered by race uh, of a particular person. And there's research to show that people would, are more likely to cross the road if they see a black man coming towards them rather than a white man coming towards them. So obviously there's a racial um, basis to these things. So I think neuroimaging is really showing us that besides race and gender, accents as well. It's really showing how accents can also be a kind of a reason for how we form a notion of in-group and out-group and how we mm. judge people based on accents as well.
2: That's really interesting. And, and thinking about this idea of, of in-group and out-group, you said that these biases, they're, they, they're historically evolutionary were helpful. So, you know, when we were talking, I was thinking about when do these biases, how are they getting us into sort of trouble now? Like, where are they, where are they capturing some of these prejudices that, you know, consciously we'd be like, no, I'm, I don't want to hold these thoughts, but implicitly we might
3: have them.
0: Yeah. So I talked about the notion of templates. These are the templates, like the stereotypes that we hold of people, you know, so um, people might, through their past experiences or through their, the, what they read uh, in media, the headlines bylines, mm. or through, um, they're just the way they've been brought up or the, what information they've been given. They, they might have these stereotypes of people that People of a certain, with a certain accent, or with a certain skin color, or with a certain gender, or a certain kind of person would behave in a certain way, or is it more likely to behave in a certain way, or they are more likely to have this characteristic. So these kind of stereotypes are quite can be quite harmful in the end because mm-hmm. they are homogenizing all these people. Because of their one particular characteristic, and I, I talked about halo effect when we see a positive mm. attribute, we attribute a lot of other positive attributes to them as well. But there's a an opposite side to it as well, where if you see a negative a, attribute, a negative thing to a person because of a certain set stereotype, mm. we might think that it they have might have other negative attributes as well. You know, so that's mm. called a horn effect. So um, a horn effect can be really harmful in the way we interact with people because we're making these predetermined judgments on them and it can affect the decisions we make about them and that affects a lot in workplaces and hiring, recruitment, but generally mm. in society as well, the people we choose to live with, work with, be friends with. And so all these, these and then these stereotypes where negative biases become prejudices, they become so deeply rooted within us that we mm. are unlikely to ever change our mind about it and we attach certain kind of stigma to certain mm. groups of people, then they're really harmful.
2: Yeah, and we also, like, I think you very, it's, we've probably all heard of, like, you know, gender implicit bias or, like, race un- unconscious biases, um, but you also mentioned to me in our discussion of, like, not just the negative stereotypes we need to think about we also want to think about positive ones and and what that means in implicit biases and in particular in relation to women i wonder if you can talk a bit about that
0: yes i I think um women uh certainly sometimes so we carry a lot of sometimes we might justify our biases by saying these are biases are positive are good you know Mm -hmm. like for instance i talk in my book about how Asians have this stereotype, people have this stereotype, they're really good at maths or science or something like that. And women are wonderful because they're caring and nurturing. Mm, yeah. That's a positive attribute that or stereotype that's assigned to them. But these positive stereotypes can also be harmful because ultimately they are also homogenizing the group and making them kind of, giving them, them one property which can hinder other things. So for instance, with women, when people say they are caring and nurturing that, what can happen is that every woman is assigned this attribute. So they're Mm. expected to be like this, you know, you can't deviate from these social norms. And if you deviate from the social norm, you're seen as an anomaly and you're prejudiced against as well. So in workplaces, especially there's a double bind bias that comes into play because women are seen as caring and nurturing. So, they are not really often seen as leadership material because they don't have the dynamism or the leadership ability. Mm. And if some women don't act like this caring and nurturing way or a motherly way, like they, they, sometimes that kind of stereotype is attributed to them and they are very dynamic and they they go against these kind of stereotypical feminine qualities, which I hate these feminine and masculine qualities yeah. that are assigned to people or these labels. But if they go against it, or if they seem to go against them and behave in a manner that's not like it, they are also then against prejudiced, against and given lots of other labels, and they, and so that really hinders progression of women in the workplace, and that's why we don't see. Many women at the top of many organizations, and it's very male heavy or male dominated. So, even when organizations talk about diversity and say we've got so many women coming into the workforce, we often see that women are falling out of the labor force or not reaching the top um, le- levels where decisions are being made and where policies are being determined. So, they don't really have that voice in the organization. Again, Asians have this positive stereotype, for instance, just as an example, which means that anybody who doesn't conform mm. to those is also biased they feel guilty or they might have mental health problems because they're not fulfilling that role they're yeah. supposed to play so those are some of the positive stereotypes so-called positive stereotypes can be harmful as well
2: yeah does that does do positive stereotypes link to something you call the stereotype threat in your book or is that a, a bit a, a bit different um, it?
0: Off. Uh, it doesn't directly link to that but yes positive um stereotype threat is something that is. Is, we, is research is really showing that that happens as well. So for instance, i work worked with a lot of schools and organizations in terms of STEM and women in STEM. Mm. <coughs> and um, I see that with young girls, as young as like eight or nine, they think that they're not very good at maths and science. And they have mm. this, they carry these stereotypes, these ingrained stereotypes because of social conditioning or what they hear or how mm. teachers or these, subversive messages subtle messages they receive from everybody around them so what happens is that they feel threatened if they step into a domain which they think they don't fit in So due to race gender accent or anybody we're talking a lot about working class people stepping into domains which are predominated by by middle class or upper class people and so they feel like an imposter they feel like they don't fit in and so they are they have this stereotype threat that they would be stereotyped Okay, so if I came into the UK as an immigrant, as a single parent, as a, as a woman lecturer, first woman lecturer in a leading UK yeah. engineering department, so you have this, in, you don't realize it, but you often have this kind of feeling that if I go, if I do something wrong, I would be more judged than the other person because I have to prove myself more than mm. the other person because I have to shatter some of these stereotypes. And that also affects performance because people are already assuming within themselves that there'll be stereotypes and that makes them more anxious in terms of performance and that affects. And so it's kind of a self-fulfilling vicious cycle because ultimately if they don't perform as well, then people can say, oh, women are not as good at this or people of certain race or ethnicity Mm. are not good at this. So it it becomes a vicious cycle, The stereotype threat.
2: My gosh. So it's negative stereotypes, positive stereotypes, and then you understand in taking in stereotypes about you being stereotyped, it's very, yeah. That that part of your book really got me, because I was like, oh, like, didn't realise how my brain was thinking about, you know, things I've done in my own life.
1: thanks for listening to the trouble club podcast if you'd like to know more about our events or become a member do check us out on our website www.thetroubleclub.com you can also find this linked in the description below this podcast Um, and just to say to everyone that this book is quite chunky and it's got you
2: cover so many different types of biases um, from a lot about race and gender you've already mentioned accents also ageism like justice, hindsight, law. And so we can't go into everything, but maybe we can touch on whatever the audience are interested in the Q and A. But one bit I found really interesting, and I think you did too, so you wrote a whole section on it, was the idea of, of how technology and implicit bias work together. So obviously this draws on everything we've been talking about in terms of stereotypes. So perhaps you can tell us what implicit biases are you seeing commonly in like new emerging technology?
0: It's really interesting with technology because that's where my academic interest in Mm. biases started because I was working with technology and technology is seen as kind of a black box, that it's a panacea for all the ills. And I usually get all these emails from people saying, oh, you talk about biases, but we've developed this AI technology, which will remove all the biases in hiring and recruitment. And I have to be skeptical about it because... Mm. Technology is not free of our societal biases. It's rooted in society that we are in. Um, the people who are designing these technology, the teams that are working on this, their biases get in built into them. But the data sets that the AI or the machine learning is trained on, because there has to be a training data set, that's rooted in our society, in our culture. And so any biases that are inbuilt in our society ingrained in it, get inbuilt in these data sets as well, because any data set is just a snapshot of society. And so there are decisions mm. made, on, made on who, um, what kind of data should be captured. We can't have everything about the world that we live in and what becomes more salient. But also these past experiences, like I talk, uh, give a number of examples in the book about like mm. the Amazon, um, the training thing because in the past only men had applied for a certain job so when they the algorithm and it was showing the ad for a work uh, for a job a uh, new job it didn't show it to women because it was trained on these past data sets and so they had to mm. re- withdraw that um, mm. once it was brought to attention um i also talk about personal experience of there's a lot of work being done on how um, ai facial recognition technology doesn't recognize skin color darker skin colors and mm. Uh, they've labeled people with darker skin as gorillas or I personally went to take a photo in a photo passport photo booth in one of the supermarkets which is just a normal thing to do on any day but Mm. I went in and I tried at least 30 times and it would not take a picture of me because it kept on saying your eyes are closed and I actually took a photograph of me at that moment where my eyes were really wide open and it kept on saying that your eyes are closed and when I shared this on Twitter people really came in and share their own experiences mm. of darker skin color or with hair, which is a different style or African-American um, uh, hairstyles or whatever. And they, they, so these data are also based on the social norms. What mm. is the norm? And yeah. any deviations from that norm, they consider it an anomaly and they cannot deal with it. Um, there's a lot of work being done in the voice assistance as well. And that's something that I'm really interested in as well, because, voice assistants were based on, uh, or or all got women's names, so Siri mm. and, and they were designed. So again, it comes back to the teams that are designing it. And most of these STEM teams or the teams that are working on it are men. And so these voice assistants are rooted in women avatars. And it creates, not only reinforces this notion that women are subservient and submissive, But also, it shows that this is the kind of societal norm that we are working with, stereotype. And this is, it's kind of heightens the gender inequality, but also demonstrates the gender inequality that exists in our world as well. So there are so many examples in the book about technology and biases, and I'm really fascinated by what's happening with technology at the moment.
2: And and how do you feel about these technology companies? They have, they've had this power to reinforce implicit biases in their technology. And I, I think one of the examples that really got me, I can't remember if it was a Google phone or, or YouTube upload where they hadn't considered left-handed users. And so they were really confused why some videos uploaded weirdly. And that really struck me because it was like such a thing to miss that everyone is right-handed. Um, so my question is, is we've touched on some of these consequences of these implicitly biased technologies, but do you feel worried, confident, or that these technology companies are gonna do something about these implicit biases? Or yeah, how do you feel about the fact that these big companies hold so much power?
0: Yeah, I do feel um, concerned, but I remain optimistic Mm. um, because that is the only way to go. Um, I'm glad that we're having these conversations about it. And there's so much more awareness, but recently I just saw that Google had stopped its diversity initiatives or something like that. I tweeted about it actually. Um, And that was just a step back because because often the problem is that these diversity inclusivity, inclusivity initiatives are seen as a tick box to either get funding or to just create a buzz around a product or a company. But unless that's kind of really deeply rooted in a company culture, it's not going to be successful. And so um, so this is the problem with, with this whole notion of diversity and inclusivity, and also worry, which is why I wrote the book, that the notion of unconscious bias, people have been talking about it so much, but there's so many misunderstandings and myths around it and, and lack of understanding, really, not just misunderstanding. Mm. And so there's a real danger that it can just become a trend word or a buzzword or a fluff word and, and just, just kind of, again, a tick box exercise rather than people really taking it seriously and thinking what the impact mm. of this is within my organization or the product that we're designing and how we can navigate that. I think but i remain optimistic that with these discussions people are beginning to take it more and um, on board and Mm. people are actually also um, there are more checks in place as well to, to see how biases are getting in built into technology well i think you've already started skirting
2: towards my next set of questions on sort of thinking well what are we going to do about this and just to flag to the audience that um, I know it's whizz by, but we're almost half an hour in, so get your questions in because we'll come to you soon. Um, so we've touched, like I said, like we scratched the surface on a few. Again, you've got so many really interesting things like on accents, on, on height, on name. Oh, fascinating. But we've probably, like you said, we've heard about some unconscious bias. We've heard the buzzwords. We've heard about doing the implicit bias of tests. So they're also, they're called officially implicit association tests. So my question is, how effective do you think these these tests are that we can do right now? How effective do you think some forms of unconscious bias training is that you might see in the workplace?
0: Yeah, I, I write about <laughs> that in the book because implicit association test came out of Harvard University, and it is a test to test associations, as it's called association. So it tests our association with certain things. So if I if they give you terms like apple and then red and green and if you always choose green that just shows that you associate apple to be green mm. and not to be red most of the time okay so that's all it's doing It's just checking your implicit associations how you associate terms and that can give an idea into what kind of biases we carry so if we always people say black men are scary or fearful or white women this or people with an accent is this or a name, particular foreign name they have a particular association with. Those kind of things can give an idea, but it's not a training. And what I'm really concerned about when I work with organizations on unconscious bias is that it, sometimes these doing this test is just taken as a form of training, that I've done this test, I got mm. a score, it wasn't very high, so I don't have unconscious bias, and now I'm cured of all unconscious biases, and I'm yeah. bias-free. And i think what i really want to assert is that we all carry biases we can never be free of biases it's just how we train ourselves to recognize and acknowledge these biases and to be free of the biases that can harm others and us yeah. when we're making important decisions in our life you know and we carry some really prejudices and how do we address those so that's that can only be done when in a in a kind of a consistent way in a regular manner in organizations not in a half day training or a one Mm. day or a test that you perform in a computer and get a score so unconscious bias training doesn't really work I think as Mm. it is at the moment or as it's often designed it has to be something that happens regularly in in an organization providing people a free non-judgmental space to share how inclusive their workplace is, what the concerns are, and to be able to acknowledge their, their biases as well, because people get defensive and because we all like to think we are very egalitarian and we don't carry any biases. So I think that's, that's something that, yes, I am, I'm concerned about, again, I remain optimistic. (laughs) That's good. Well, I mean, we've talked about how
2: it might be in a workplace, but individually, like how, what would you say maybe in like a family or me as me as myself, is there anything that I can do to take those steps to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, acknowledge the biases and try and make sure I'm not acting on harmful ones?
0: Yeah, I think educating ourselves is one of the first things we can do. And I think we all have a responsibility of educating ourselves and being open-minded about, as I said, about our biases and our stereotypes. And I hope that's what the book can help people to do as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, another thing that really works is being empathetic and kind and compassionate towards other people, trying to see it from the other person's viewpoint um, and trying to uh, step into their shoes sometimes. That kind of exercise really works about why they might have felt like uh, a joke that you thought was just a joke Mm -hmm. might have felt made them feel othered or offended or how them that might have come across to them as a microaggression. So that that is something that we can all do, educate ourselves, read as much as possible, read as much as diverse literature as possible. I think that's really, really important, and especially in a family and with children. And I, I uh, talk about that in the book about developmental psychology, the children start forming this notion of in-group and out-group mentality from a very young age. So it's our responsibility to expose them to as many um ideas as possible from a young age and diverse literature diverse role models and representation and i think because of our confirmation biases we might feel that people who look like us or act like us or talk like us are the only people that matter or are the only people who are good people so Mm. that's another way of breaking out of a confirmation bias as well when we start opening our world a little bit
2: do you want to tell the audience just if they don't know what confirmation bias is
0: Yes, so confirmation bias, as I said, is is a bias that we have of people who look like us, act like us, talk like us. So if you think about uh, people who you are friends with or people mm. who you live with or naturally gravitate towards or six people you're friends with, you would find that most of them would be just like you, probably went to the same university, probably went to the same school or probably come from the same town. So we have all these that we are gra- naturally gravitating towards people who are like us, and that that also matters when we are kind of creating these notion of tribes in social media as well. So we are mm. forming groups and liking each other's posts, and so then this creates a kind of echo chamber or a filter bubble where we are only seeing our views bounce back at us, and nothing that is against that. So we are never exposed to anything that's uncomfortable to us or anything any view that might be opposite to our views as well and and i often talk about how people only read what their friends recommend or what we i see other people recommending and then this creates this kind of amplifying mm. effect for certain things and for not for other things and so i think it's just sometimes good to step out of our comfort zones and 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 think about am I doing this because I have a confirmation bias because I think this person is just like me. And this affects in workplace, also in hiring when people hire for fit, that's kind of a confirmation bias because we naturally think, oh, this person went to the same university or this person would really fit into our workplace because they are like everybody else who's around here. So that's kind of confirmation bias.
2: So fight our confirmation bias, humanize people uh, seem to be our top tips. And I had one last question, which was I'll sneak it in before we go to the audience. Um, do you struggle? I'm thinking about this confirmation bias. Do you struggle with people that don't want to acknowledge implicit biases and unconscious biases? Do you still get people say they don't exist?
0: Yeah, lots of people say that.
2: Yeah,
0: and lots of people say um, that we are making. I'm making an issue out of nothing. Whenever I write an opinion piece or article, I get a lot of, I refuse to read the comments now on any of the opinion pieces. I write like 300 comments on it saying, oh, the woke, somebody feminist coming out and talking about it again. Um, Mm. But yes, people refuse to acknowledge it. And that's also kind of a blindsidedness because they are refusing to acknowledge what is just naturally true of all humans and that we carry these biases within us. and yes, I think people stake so find the, some of these topics really uncomfortable because mm. it makes them uncomfortable and people choose to be comfortable. And that's what I find in a lot of people who respond with um not being able to acknowledge some of the biases they might carry or not being open to even discussing them. I think we have we see so much discussion around racism all the time in media, mm. whether racism occurred or not with um with somebody and we have people, celebrities coming in and saying that's not racism, you're just talking with it's all these discussions constantly happening around us. Um it's it can get quite crowded and quite confusing for some people, I think, and overwhelming. Uh, and I think that's why we need to sometimes step away from it all and try and make up our minds about it on in on our own and read things that might help us. And and maybe if we look at the more science of biases, then it would help us understand that we are, as human beings, kind of, we have these biases, cognitive biases inbuilt in us. And, and I hope that's what the book mm. as well, help people understand the science behind it in a very accessible manner.
2: Well, it definitely, it definitely does do that. I can confirm that as someone who is not a scientist um but yeah I think we're going to open and see if the um what other questions we've had come in um so if you're able to I don't know if you've done it already Elliot have you given me the power to be the host so that means I can unmute everyone um oh I do have the power okay so um oh Sarah I'm gonna come to you first let me just find you So Sarah Hornby has got a question that we're gonna ask. Hopefully you're unmuted, Sarah. Sarah,
0: are you there? Maybe. She seems to be there, but um, her mic is not unmuted. Should be unmuted. No? Maybe she needs
2: to unmute herself, I can see a red mic there. So. Uh, if not, we can come back to you Sarah, I can try someone else. Okay, we'll come back to Sarah, if not I will um, I will ask that Sarah's question. Um, so Fiona, and see if I can, oh Sarah well, you're trying to unmute. Okay, shall we try it again since I've got you up on my participants. Okay, see if we can do it this time everyone.
0: Sarah, so you should be unmuted. No.
2: Oh, okay. We'll try we'll try another panelist. Bear with me one second. Oh. Sorry everyone. Um, so I'll just ask Sarah's question because it actually relates to a past travel event. So she says, I heard someone smart say at a previous Trouble event that online dating where selection is based on visual appearance only is forcing women to choose choose like men do. Um, Because women usually take more care over mate selection than just appearance. So she's asked, are there other differences between genders in terms of unconscious bias? And is this changing how women behave, for example? So how they behave in dating might make them act more like men.
0: Um, Yeah, so I um, personally don't believe in gender essentialism, that men and women are designed to be different biologically. We are on a spectrum, Uh, men and women behave how they behave a lot because we are culturally conditioned. That's how we are socialized from birth and that's why I take so much care when I'm even bringing up my children. because in just the kind of implicit subtle things we say to them, we don't realize how we're giving them cues about how a man or a girl or a boy should behave. And so sometimes girls and boys or men and women grow up in these ways where they think that they ought to behave in this way or where they think that's what, how I should behave. And we think that that's innate often because of that. And that's how we design these masculine and feminine qualities that, If I tell people I've got three-year-old twins, they often say, oh, thank, you should thank yourself that you've got girls and not boys because boys are so much rowdier than girls. Mm. They haven't spent any time with my girls, so they can't, (laughs) Um, so those are the kind of things that we predetermine according to that. And I don't know if women think that that's how they should choose men or whether they naturally gravitate towards trying to take more care. Or you think men, or I don't know if men think that they can't take more care because that would make them less masculine in any way, or whether they think that they are, have the liberty to choose like that, and women think they don't have the liberty to choose like that, you know? There are lots of complex questions around the fact how men and women behave. Um, I don't think that, again, I don't think biases are based on your gender. It does. Is, it is based on how we are being brought up. So yes, men and women are, are often, as I say, brought up in different ways sometimes. So that can determine how they feel. Yes, mm. if you are, come from a, um, uh, if you're a nat- born w- woman and you feel gender inequality more acutely than men who have the privileged position. So it depends on how many privileges you have in life as well. So we, I talk about the notion of privilege, and people get really defensive. But privilege is just something which removes some of the obstacles in a path which others might have. So a person of color might feel more oppressed because they have the historic legacy of being oppressed, rather than a person who has had more privileges or of education or acts, other things or class or something. So I think all these things mean that people, yes, feel some of these biases more acutely than others. I don't know if that answers the question. Um, And I hopefully
2: have done an alternative way. So Fiona, you should be unmuted if you'd like to ask your question.
4: Hi, can you hear me? Yes, Yes, we can. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much for for talking about this interesting subject. I have a question about a double bind or the, the double bind bias at work, and it i suppose is the uh, the version where um, uh, it, well it, it 's a, a situation i 've experienced in that it, I worked in a male dominated environment i didn 't have any male, um, any female role models or bosses ever. And um, I suppose I copied what my um, male colleagues did. And um, it started off quite mildly, I suppose, getting um, mm. what I could say would be pushback, really, from people I was managing or working with. Um, and as I got more and more senior, it just became really, really difficult. Um, and in, in particular, I don't know whether this was... A part of the environment we were in, um, in that everyone felt slightly under attack or um, th- felt that they were being negatively affected by, by it without knowing what it was. Um, but um, working with younger women in that environment, they seemed to find um, the uh, wounds. Um, really not, um, not appealing and reacted really badly to it. Um, and I just wondered what on earth can uh, people do or what could I do in the future to, to mitigate against that? Because, I mean, effectively, it became very difficult. I stopped giving useful feedback to the people I was um, uh, managing because um, I had to really, really watch what I said. I couldn't give them feedback that would help them progress, so it started to negatively impact them. It negatively impacted my ability to be effective in my job because they couldn't be effective in their jobs. Um, and it just was a really terrible situation. Any
0: tips? Oh, thanks for sharing that, Fiona. Um, it's really sad. I know. And, and quite a, I think, not that rare probably, um, that this happens. I personally experienced something like this in academia. I was a senior academic and, the, and they were all men around me. Um, I think, again, as I say in the book, women, when they speak up or when then they have their strong opinions or when they are seen as senior leaders, it is often men find it very difficult to accept that.
1: You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode.
0: Because men have this natural kind of notion that they should be in charge and a woman should behave in a certain way and that's why women leaders i think find it so difficult sometimes because you have to navigate a kind of a womanly persona but also be masculine enough to be able to be in control of these situations and you're expected to behave in a certain way And I think what's happening now and that we are seeing more role models, perhaps, maybe a little bit more role models where women are at these top leadership positions are not not conforming to these kind of masculine behaviors, but dealing in more empathetic way. And right now when we are talking about coronavirus, we were talking, uh, there's been so many reports about how women leaders of countries with women Prime Ministers or leaders are dealing with this crisis more effectively. So I think we are starting this conversation more that some of the feminine kind of qualities that were undermined or dismissed are perhaps really important um, in in a workplace situation like this, but also that people don't have to be a certain way to be a leader. You know, there's this Mm -hmm. notion, stereotypical notion of what a leader should be like. So I think it's a very tricky situation to navigate. And I, as I also talk about age in my book. And I think especially women, older women, are given certain stereotypical attributes and treated a certain way in the workplace as well. Um, what can be done about it is, again, I think having a conversation about it in the workplace, perhaps, maybe creating a space where people... Can More openly, he gives me example or reading material around to people saying this is witness it might not be seen that you're just an overreacting hysterical woman that is is responding in an emotional sensitive way which is another thing that often assigned to women sometimes when they talk about these issues. I did
4: I did slightly try to tackle it by um, encouraging people to do the project implicit test which I thought this is great we'll start a conversation that will sort, sort it out but of course when people discover that actually it's really quite unpleasant to go on that site and discover how biased you are against people of different religions and colours and um, and short men, apparently. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and myself, I'm biased against myself. Um, uh, and, and, and what was really interesting was that people just couldn't accept it.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: They just absolutely denied that the result was valid. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we were kind of, oh, that's quite a difficult... Um, conversation to move on you know because i'd i'd thought you know well okay i'm biased against myself let's let's talk about that um but other people um really struggled with it so i think um it will be interesting to see how how people talk about it and um and i think it is obviously easier to spot bias in someone else than it is yourself i mean yeah
0: absolutely and i as i said iat is not the not the end re- solution to these biases i don't think that's the way to go personally for an unconscious bias training. I think I have a very different intervention approach in organizations that I've worked with about how to approach people and how to start talking about it, how to create conversations around it, rather than sending them to IIT, which is often considered the kind of um, way that people approach these things. So yes, um, uh, are you still working in that or? Um,
2: Oh, sorry, I've just so okay. switched Fiona around okay. so I could get the next person in, but hopefully we can bring you back. I was just aware we, there's yeah. another question that has been uh, asked as well. Um, so, hi Jasmine. Um, I really like the first part of your question, if you could go ahead with that. Yeah, how do I see where my questions go? It's in the Q&A. Um, if you click on the button
5: okay it's not there but um i'll try and remember it and um, so thank you so much this is fascinating and um also reassuring in a way um because i too don't share any of these essentializing or homogenizing views about gender about race about all of these things so it's, re- it's a relief to know that research shows that so much of these things are kind of uh, a kind of society a cultural kind of a, a, you know way in which we build identity i work in a university and um, and I teach students um, in an arts department and I find that they're very open to notions of how language is really important and they are very aware much more so I have to say than um, a lot of the senior academics and also some students as well um, about the way in which language plays an important role um, in reinforcing um, implicit bias, but also and so they are very mindful when they choose language um, that they would use in certain settings and I'm so my main question is um, to what extent is language, oh, I'm, I'm sure it's fundamental, but how language is really important to the question of implicit bias and how that functions and if we saw more mindful approaches to the way in which we term certain things, would we see improvements in this kind of breaking down of these essentializing notions of identity?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank Thanks, you for asking that question, Jasmine. Um, yes, so yes, language, as you say, is is extremely important because um, if you look at the whole notion of metaphorical theory or the work done by Lakoff and Johnson about how we assign properties to certain labels and how we form the concept around certain labels to include lots of other properties as well is, is really interesting. And I think language matters a lot. And I write uh, about it um, because... The way we describe something, the way the labels we assign to something, they are very heavily loaded often with meaning. And these meanings come from our cultural roots or societal roots, you know, the society assigns meaning to some of these labels as well. Um, But the way we describe things, the way we label things, um, the way we talk about things actually creates, reinforces implicit biases. It can heighten implicit biases. It can create new kind of biases as well. So it's really really important to be very mindful of these these terms that we use and the way that we use them or we, we employ them for people um the the people can say that this is extreme wokeness and especially when we talk about sex and gender or race for instance people say that this is just society going crazy or it's political correctness gone mad but i think that's why it's really important for people to understand what effect language can has, have on people, you know? Um, and and I think that's why when I, when for instance, just a very small example, when I talk to my children who are both, um, I've got three girls, but just my three-year-old t- twins, I avoid always calling them hello girls or people do that. But the constantly when they are called that, they get their, their, their recognize that their identity is a girl and then they start assigning themselves the properties that they think girls should have that they see from everybody around them their friends or books or whatever so i think yes language matters a lot in a kind of a simplistic way but if we had more time we could go in more in detail but hopefully um i've talked about it in the book so thanks jasmine
2: yeah you, you do i think i i remember a lot of the stuff you said about uh jokes as well was tied up in the language. And we've got um, Mary, you've turned your video on as well, amazing, um, I, yeah, if you'd like to ask your question.
3: Yeah, hi, it's Mary Ann here. Um, younger generations, we were just talking about that, are on the whole much more aware of conscious bias, and I'm sure would like to think that they don't suffer from unconscious bias. But I just wonder, is there any evidence to suggest that they suffer from less unconscious or implicit bias? And older generations and also secondly if you don't mind you said that using the implicit association test is a bad way to get people signed up uh, to dealing with this problem and i wondered if you could tell us what approach you, you use that isn't that and how we can actually correct for our biases
0: thanks um thank you yes i don't think there's any evidence about the fact that younger people are less biased than older people um, it doesn't really matter according to age. And I talk about ageism a lot in the book as well, about bias towards younger people, but bias towards older people as well, about how they are created and how we feel these stereotypes are created and what, what impact it has. But I think um, generally it depends, mostly it depends on how a person is being brought up, what they're seeing around them, what they're reading around them. And it could be that people of a certain generation, of a certain age, might it, their biases, a lot of their stereotypes might emerge from their own context, their own childhood experiences, the way they be, They thought that some things were more acceptable. That's how people acted. That's what everybody says. So what's the problem with it? You know, so that, and now we are talking more and more about these things. So I do find that younger generations becoming more aware of it, but ultimately it does depend on where you are and who you're talking to what books you're reading at home, how your parents are reacting. Children pick up so much from their parental biases. So if I'm really biased and prejudiced against something, my children are more likely to grow up like that and to be biased and prejudiced until they have their own kind of willingness to educate themselves. So um, I don't think there's an evidence that there's a big divide between generations or ages. I wouldn't say that. I think it depends on your context and the way you've been brought up, the way you've learned certain things and how long it takes for you to maybe break those habits. So again, perhaps a person who has been employing these prejudices or thinking a certain way for 50 years might find it more difficult to change that than a person who's only been thinking like that for five years. So that's how age comes into play, if that makes sense, perhaps. Um, And the second part of your question was the implicit association test. And I talk a lot about that in the book, about why I think IAT is not... We don't often hear criticisms of IIT because that's really the only test that's out there that was developed in Harvard to and there have been some critical analysis of it. There have been some and more kind of um, discussions around it, but not much, and we don't see that much in media because it's kind of become this kind of Um, umbrella framework within which unconscious bias training can and I don't think people who invented that ever thought this is going to be the one that is used for unconscious bias training everywhere it is a test to give you an idea of how you associate certain and again the thought about language that Jasmine asked about how we associate certain terms in our language with each other how we associate certain concepts so the approach that I take and I talk about it in the last chapter of my book is more comprehensive as I said it has to be a consistent kind of a regular intervention. It has to be a series of workshops. It has to be a series of conversations. It has to be um, a place where people have more opportunity to engage and to acknowledge their biases and I have a number of questionnaires, which I've developed that people find it or more workshop, more interactive discussions rather than just sitting in front of a computer. IT can be a good start. I'm not dismissing it completely. I think it's a good start for towards acknowledging and understanding unconscious
3: bias. But I wonder whether IAT is even measuring the right thing because, um, I mean, I, I'm actually also writing a book about, um, about um, gender bias in, in, in a slightly different way, but, um, but you know, I took the IAT test and it told me that I was quite sexist. And the reason was that I did associate, I found it easier to associate men with science, for instance, and women with cooking. That's not because I think that men ought not to cook and that women ought not to do science, quite the opposite. I'd love to see more women scientists but it is simply the case that there are many more male scientists and therefore my brain works faster associating male with scientists. So it seems to be confusing the sort of the descriptive with the normative.
0: Yes absolutely what you're saying is is true because we don't understand how it and often people don't understand how it works or what it's measuring and also it's a snapshot. It's it's measuring what you're thinking at that particular moment. And people don't often associate or do the same associations. Every time you take the test, you're going to have a different result as well. And there's a gender-based IET, which has been a slight adaptation of that as well. And um, I talk about the technical or the technical aspects of IET in the book. Um, And interesting to hear about your book. So feel free to send me a message later on, we can carry on the conversation.
3: Thank you, yes, might do that, thanks. Brilliant, thank you so much,
2: Marianne. Um, perfect, I'm going to, for the last question, combine a few, because um, quite a few people have asked that it's on the theme that we you've kind of already mentioned that it's very difficult to have these conversations when certain people in power don't acknowledge unconscious bias, whether that's in the workplace, I had someone asking about, know what happens if senior managers don't buy into it how can we move forward or again any tips for communicating with people who won't acknowledge that biases exist um i don't know if you've got any last final thoughts to leave us with
0: send them a copy of sway (laughs) (laughs) definitely no i mean i have people in my life who don't acknowledge these things and i have sent them a copy and actually they are very close to me and they're reading now and they just message me that actually I have begun to acknowledge the biases and what you were talking about last time. So, so that was a great win. Um, but no, I think it is very tricky. And especially if you are in a position where a person in position of power is actually not acknowledging how you feel like you've been treated. I think we, sometimes worry the impact that having a conversation like this can have on a career and especially I think young women don't perhaps and again I am stereotyping but that's what research shows that they don't have often the same kind of confidence to go and talk about it and say that I have felt offended because of of the reason that women are seen as sensitive or hysterical. And again, the stereotype threat happens and we don't want to be associated with these qualities and properties. And I know that and I've experienced in my life as well about how you try to fit in and you don't often say things that have been offensive or that you felt othered or you felt like it was a microaggression. Um, I think it is important to go and talk about it in a sensible kind of balanced way, take as much evidence with you as possible, maybe start writing it down or noting emails or noting instances where you felt like, because once you have these, it it is very difficult to ignore that. against something. If you just go, I felt like this so many times, it's very difficult to, uh, for somebody, it's easier for somebody to dismiss that. Mm. So it might feel like you're being paranoid, but I think noting down these things, having a record of these things, um, when you felt like that, when somebody said anything, uh, maybe keeping a track of emails, which you felt like they were, and having this as kind of backup evidence when you go in to have a conversation is really important. And I think that's that's what you have to do you have to back it with research you have to back it with evidence and um have an honest and be brave enough to have an honest conversation be courageous and i don't think people would find it easy to dismiss that
2: yeah i guess sometimes it must feel feel hard if you're already in a vulnerable group but absolutely,
0: absolutely yeah i know that personally it's easy mm. to say that but as i say If you have all the research and the evidence, Mm. if you if you have somebody else, a mentor who you could talk to in the organization, um, who could be uh, an ally to you? Because Mm. you need people like that. Um, And yeah, I think that's that's really important.
2: I mean, talking of having evidence and things to back you up to just plug the book once again and like I said we've only scraped the surface there is so much amazing stuff in here that we didn't get a chance to talk about um and so I'd just like to say thank you once again thank for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure um I hope everyone has enjoyed the discussion and that we Thank God we've got the tech working, so it was really nice to hear some of your voices as well. Um, So we look forward to seeing you at a future event. Um, To just give you the usual plugs, you can follow us all on Twitter and Instagram at The Trouble Club. You can join our mailing list um, if you go visit our website, www.thetroubleclub.com, and that way you will be kept up to date with all the events that are coming up. Um, Our next event is on Monday the 1st of June and is titled The New Normal. Um, where we will be having a look at what our future could be after the pandemic and lockdown eases. Um, this is a panel discussion, and our speakers will be uh, Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Bridget Phillipson, Chief Leader Writer at The Observer and Guardian columnist, um, Sonia Soda, and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, Jill Rector. So that is going to be a super interesting one. Um, We will be emailing you to make sure that you don't forget to pick up a copy of Sway and where you can find um, all of um, Prager's amazing work. I was also reading your article in Forbes, which talks about um, gender inequality during the coronavirus. So that's a great read as well. If anyone wanted to get into the, the gender biases in a bit more depth. Um, I think all that's left for me to say is thank you again. Thank you for everyone for joining us. And we hope that we see you soon and have a lovely rest of your week. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. All right. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm going to end the meeting now, so goodbye.
1: (laughs) You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction they all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode.